body and soul. Body and soul. In the year 2000, I went to Amsterdam. There was a conference happening. Billy Graham, who died a week ago, was, uh, if you like, passing on the baton to a new generation of leaders and evangelists, people who talk to others about uh, Jesus. And uh, people from all different nations came together in Amsterdam in 2000. And uh, I had the privilege of going as well. Well, people from all different nations came and there was one particular seminar in which there was a room filled with Africans. They, there was a, a, one of the bishops, one of the leaders that was speaking and I spoke to someone who I'd acquainted myself with after the seminar. He walked out and he said, you will not believe what, what just happened in that seminar room. I said, what? He said, well, at the end of the entire presentation, there was a, a younger African man who stood up and he raised his hand. And they passed him the microphone and he asked this question. He said, I'm just wondering if you've given us all the message about Jesus. I'm just wondering if there's something missing. I said, what happened? He said, there was just total silence in the room. He said, because uh, our nation has just gone through this incredible war-torn violence where human beings have done detestable things to one another. And they, both groups called themselves followers of Jesus. So I'm just wondering if we've missed something about the good news of Jesus. I said, what happened? He said, there was just this embarrassed silence. I think one of the African bishops once said, knowing of this kind of scenario, that it seemed as though the waters of baptism have been rather shallow. Is there any connection between belief And behaving in following Jesus? Yes. It's got everything to do with belief and behavior. I was talking to a a person who I acquainted myself with when I went through high school. He later went on to be an anesthetist, and I was having a conversation with him many years ago. And he he said to me, I've decided to work for the Royal Women's Hospital. I identify as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. And and I do that because I know that they do um, abortions at uh, uh, the Royal Women's. And I know this is incredibly sensitive, but he he said to me, um, he said, I figured that someone's got to do it, so why not me? And I thought, why not you? Has following Jesus got anything to do with our bodies, with our material substances at all? And why is it that we seem to have a disconnect sometimes between belief and behavior and what our bodies have got to do with following Jesus? In fact, Jesus had the same trouble himself. He said these words, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Master, Master, and do not do what I say. You see, in Jesus' world, to believe something meant to behave it. In fact, it wasn't a belief until it was behaved. So how is it that we've come to this place in our current generation where belief can be so disconnected from behaving, where our bodies might not, in some people's perceptions, have anything to do with our spirits? Why is that? Well, thinkers have reflected upon this and they said, apart from the many different ways in which we've got here, there's two particular ideologies that have shaped our thinking in Western culture more than anything else. 
The first one comes from the 4th century by a gentleman called Plato. He said he, he believed that there was this distinction between the body and soul, the spirit and, the, and if you like, the flesh. He, he believed that the body was this um, material being that was subject to decay. And as a result of that, the real true self, the real part of you that was spiritual or that was eternal, that was perfect, was your spirit. And, and in fact, he, he went on to say that the body is like a prison to the spirit. And the, the thing that you look forward to most is, is dying so that your spirit can be released. And that thinking has flowed down through the ages. The split between body and soul. The second contribution, the idea to it, is the enlightenment in the 1800s when... If you like, human beings through the Renaissance time began to shift their attention from God in the heavens and shift it to the earth here below and the emergence of modern science. In in fact, the, the dialogue that happened around the enlightened time is that truth became split. Truth was no longer as it was understood back then, but truth was firstly fact that if you went through the scientific methodology, anything that could be repeatable and everything that could be validated and verified through that procedure became fact, and that was the world that was allowed to be in the public sphere, the factual world, the scientific repeatable. That was public truth or fact, which was very separate to then, if you like, the inner world of the human being, the inner world of ethics or morality or faith convictions, those things were only subject to, they couldn't be repeatable, they, they couldn't be verified scientifically. So what we will do is say that that's for the inner life, the inner world, and that is not for the public space. So they split truth. They said fact is in the public world and, if you like, faith is in the private arena. And we agreed with them. And so what do you get when you mix these two ideas together? You get an African man in 2000 saying, have we missed something about Jesus because belief doesn't seem to have influenced our behavior at all. And you get an anaesthetist who doesn't seem to blink his eyes when it comes to the, the human body and matter and if it's valuable at any extent. And you occasionally get people who come to me and say words to this literal effect, Troy, when are you going to stop talking about this political justice stuff and start to talk to us about how you can save souls for heaven in another disembodied state from the one we're in right now? (laughs) And I say back to them, I didn't know the two were separate. I didn't know they were split. I, I didn't know that they were apart. And so, my friends, one of the greatest misconceptions we have uh, in our Western world and in our thinking as followers of Jesus, and if you're here, you're checking him out, is that this, God doesn't just love our souls. He loves our bodies. He loves us as wholes, not just as souls. Let me say that again. Jesus doesn't just love souls, the spirit. He, he doesn't divide the two. In fact, he loves us as wholes, not just as souls. You see, people made in his image, human beings. It's not just a side part. It's actually part of who you are. God loves you as a whole, not just as a soul. How do I know this? It's because when Jesus walked the face of the earth, he healed people of their physical disabilities and their brokenness. He loved them as wholes, not just as souls. And when he rose to new life, he ate fish. (laughs) Meaning, he wasn't some disembodied spirit. He was actually a renewed human being that could talk and appear in a room and disappear again and eat fish. My friends, Jesus loves us as wholes, 
not just as souls. You see, the whole um, design of God is that when he looked at this world, he actually wanted to turn it the right side up. So when his kingdom life, his upside down kingdom comes into the hearts and minds of a human being, when someone agrees that Jesus is God's son who's risen to new life, that same world that Jesus brought into being when he rose that Easter Sunday morning actually comes alive in that human being in their body. And it he enlivens their mind and he breaks the power of darkness and sin that's dark and their heart and he renews their bodies. He loves them as total wholes, not just souls. So Luke records uh, an event in which Jesus is walking along and, and he hears a man crying out to him who has leprosy. And the story goes like this. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me, you can make me clean. You see, what we've understood uh, about leprosy in, in modern science now is that actually this skin infection, it's, it's actually begins with the nerve endings. They start to, if you like, lose their sensitivity. And, and so as a result of that, you don't know when you're reaching across the fire to get something uh, from the oven if you burn yourself because you don't feel it. Or if you brush up against something that's sharp, you don't know that there's a lesion that's being caused because it, it's, and that it's bleeding because you don't feel it. And so through all these secondary inflammations, eventually your body, if you like, begins to decay. And, and we discover that this man, it says that his whole body was filled with leprosy so he is in the late stages, if you like, of, of this disease that's just riddled his whole body. To be a leper in those times was to be an outcast. Uh, Jewish law had these quarantine rules and regulations to keep disease from spreading. And, and so the way it would operate as soon as you were, if you like, diagnosed or developed this is that you would have to live apart from the community. If you had a family, they would have to feed you, but they would come and they would place food on the ground and then they would walk away so you could come up and pick up the food and take it back to eat. I mean, just you could imagine, couldn't you? And, and if you were walking out into a, an area where there was a leper, he was obliged to call out to you from the top of his voice, sometimes covering his mouth, unclean, unclean unclean, so that you would notice you're a real wide course from them, so you wouldn't get contaminated. And so the rightful thing to do would be to, to steer away. But it says this man, maybe he's heard something about Jesus, but he runs up to him and he falls down with his face to the ground. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus reached out his hand and touch the man. Apart from potentially getting contaminated himself, Jesus actually steps towards this man and places his hands on him. Maybe the first time he's been embraced or physically touched in goodness knows how long. You see, Jesus could have said to him, your sins are forgiven now, the best thing for you to do is just to roll up and die because there's a better place for you to go to. But he doesn't. With his upside down kingdom coming here on earth, he touches him. And it says, 
immediately his leprosy left him. He says, be clean. You see, God loves us as wholes, not just as souls. And then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. That is, now that you've been welcomed back into the community, if you like, by me, you need to get it checked out by the authorities so they can give you the all clear. So now what I've done for you in part will be experienced in whole. And so he presumably does. You see, God loves us as wholes, not just as souls. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him, and we insert our name in there and say, for God so loved me, God so loved me, God so loved me. And No, no, for God so loved this entire cosmos. For God so loved the world, the trees, the plants, the sun, the wind, the atoms that he put together and structured for God so loves the entire cosmos that when he looks down, not looks down, where he looks from where he dwells, he actually sees the way in which human beings have had their minds darkened and their their hearts darkened and they start to treat one another so violently and poorly where love doesn't reign. Where, where greed abounds, where posturing and hubris and the human beings doing to one another what he never designed them to do. And he looks from where he dwells and he grieves. So therefore he sent his son so that whoever places their trust in him might begin to have a renewed mind, might experience an awakened heart. If you like, I said the other weeks, he drops the old engine out of the car and he plants a new one in his spirit and he brings us alive so that we begin to think like him and have a heart transformed by him. So these human fleshly bodies now start to do his bidding. And C.S. Lewis understood this in part completely. What does he say? The conversation between Lucy and Mr. Tumnus. This dreadful winter. Oh, winter's not all bad because there's Christmas. Not here. No, we haven't had Christmas in over a hundred years. What, no presents for a hundred years? It's always winter, never Christmas. It's been a long, a long, long winter. And C.S. Lewis is describing the world that it's been filled with winter, if you like, but when Jesus comes, when Aslan's on the move, he begins to push back, if you like, all of those forces of darkness, all that which has decayed the world around about, and he starts to turn, if you like, put his upside-down kingdom in the hearts and minds and human beings, and he begins to turn it right side up. And that's what he does, because that's what his good news is. Oh, am I making sense here this morning? God loves us as holes not just as souls, and the implications of this are enormous. Where is Narnia? Well, it's through the wardrobe. Where is it? It's through the painting. Where is it? It's on the train station, and it's just, where is it? How far away is it? It's not very far away at all. It's not high up there in the clouds. Where is Narnia? It's right here. It's under the Bible. It's behind the piano. It's, it's behind the microphone. It's close to you in another dimension where God dwells. It's not far away. He's awfully, extremely close. 
He's just in another dimension that you can't see that's out of eye shot just right now. Paul, the writer in, in the New Testament, he writes this most profoundly in Romans chapter 8 that's worth reading again and again and again. He says, the sufferings we go through, so followers of Jesus who've had their hearts and minds renewed that are still living right now in a decayed world that one day he says he's going to put right. This is what he says. The sufferings we go through in the present time are not worth putting in the scale alongside the glory of what that new age, the new world is going to be unveiled for us. Yes, he says this about the trees and the birds and the rivers and the stones. Creation itself is like it's on tiptoe with expectation, eagerly awaiting the moment when God's children will be revealed. Why? Because then the rest of creation will know that their turn is next just like they're human beings who have actually followed Jesus, if you like, had their hearts and minds renewed. When Jesus comes and puts it all right, he's going to renew those people's bodies as well. And the rest of creation will go, wow, our turn is next. And that's what he describes when God's children, if you like, are glorified or given their new renewed bodies. God loves us as wholes, not just as souls. God loves you as a whole, not just as a soul. You see, when someone does something wrong, they feel guilty and they say, I did something wrong. But shame speaks differently. Shame says, I didn't do something wrong. I am wrong. And Jesus comes and places his hands on and says, I love you as a whole and you can be clean. That's how I see you. Just trust me. Trust me. That's how I see you. I brought with myself, I'm going to finish here with a teacup this morning. This is a teacup. I brought a teacup. This is a teacup. Mr. Tumnus had tea. I'm having tea. And this is from our very special Bramley Hedge at home. It's got a pride of place. When you come to our place, you might have a cup of tea. One day if I was looking for a screwdriver and I couldn't find a screwdriver but I really needed something to fix the the squeaky door. I could, if you like, pick up this teacup and take it to the the door and and use it as a screwdriver. I could use the edge of it here. It might chip it, it might scratch it, it might break it, it but, but I could, I could do that. But that's not what a teacup is made for. If you came and you said, I need to drive a nail uh, into a piece of wood and I can't find a hammer and I went searching for one, I couldn't find one, I could say, look, I have this teacup though. I mean, we could use it as a, and, and you could probably use it once. <laughs> um, and, and then it'll probably bruise, it might be broken, it might, but you could use it, but that's not what teacups are made for. If I couldn't get the fuel pump into the car because it just didn't reach, and the car was parked too far away, I could, if I had a teacup in my car, go, it's okay because I have a teacup. Um, And I could take the teacup and at the petrol station, I could pour petrol into the teacup and I could take it to the fuel tank and I could pour, it'd drip out some and it probably wouldn't be efficient, but I could do that. But you would look at me and say, Troy, you are mad because that's not what teacups are made for. What are teacups made for? Drinking tea. And so when you pour tea into this and you sit down, you have a very civilized conversation. And it's an extraordinary conversation that you can have. And you can have a wonderful time together because you're using the teacup for what the teacup was made for. 
Have you ever considered that to really believe something, you have to behave it? And have you ever considered that how you use your body and when you use it to do the things that are pleasing to God, that you are in fact using it in the right way It was always designed to be used and it is good and it is pleasing and it is freeing and it is life-giving. Let me put it another way. Imagine if our bodies were receptacles of God's supernatural, gracious, generous love that when he pours that into our bodies, they are renewed and they are used to do his bidding, not because they have to because he's an angry God, but because they want to from the inside out. They are putting, if you like, aside the old ways and they're embracing new ones. They're using the teacup in the way it was always being designed and made for. God loves you as a whole, not just as a soul. So when am I going to stop talking about injustice? When am I going to stop talking about lack of education in East Timor or provision in Laos? When am I going to stop talking about provision of food in the community meals? When are we going to stop doing um, the provision that we have for, for our, our Wednesday's Hill Clinic? When am I going to stop doing engages on a Sunday morning? I'll tell you what, I'll stop doing those when God stops caring about human beings made in his image and then I'll stop doing those things. Because God loves us as wholes, not just as a soul. Craig, please. So as we just let this sit for a moment, as we reflect, we need some space and time. Because I've spoken about some heavy things. We just need to slow down and let God be God and to speak. Jesus doesn't save us from this earth. He saves us for this earth. Jesus doesn't save us from this world he loves. He saves us for this world. Right now, I wonder if God might be placing on your mind and your heart a new way of using your body. He will call some of you to do extraordinary things that will use your hands and your mind and your eyes and your creativity to do wonderful things in bringing his upside-down kingdom to put this world right side up. In fact, one of the slogans we had around here many years ago, still have it, is that we are partnering with God in transforming his world until he comes back again and does it in full. We're just a little foretaste. So, so that when, if you like, his heavenly cupboard comes down to earth and it comes combined here and he renews this earth, my cup, my body, will actually find its place in the cupboard where it fits perfectly. In fact, it'll go like Ruth. Oh, I've been working towards this all my life. There's no discontinuity between the heavens to come and the earth below because there'll be like this... It was worth 
all the hard work. It was worth the criticism. It was worth the standing out from the crowd. It was worth it. So that same Paul writes to a church in Corinth. They're a muddled up church. You've got two brothers dragging each other off to the courtroom in the public civic space. Having a dispute before Roman judges. And he goes, can you think that out again, please? Don't you know you're going to judge the world? What are you doing? He, he says... To, to some who are sharing their sexuality outside of the covenant of the marriage bed and, and they're sharing beds together, they're not married, and he says to you, wait, wait a second, flee from that. That's not how God designed the teacup to be made and used. He, he, he says to a person who's coming to share communion with the church, drunk, drunk, and they're eating the food beforehand so the poor people who arrive afterwards don't have anything to eat. And there's this separation between rich and poor. And he says, stop it. That's not how your bodies were meant to be used. He says this. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? The Spirit God gave you. Get this. So that you do not belong to yourself. So you lose your rights in some way with Jesus. How dare he? How dare he? Who does he think he is? The king of the world? You are quite an expensive purchase. So honour God in your body. Matter matters. Our bodies matter. So that others might see and go, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're not just like everyone else. There's something different about you. What is it? Because some of the stuff you do is ridiculous to me. Usually, I find that if we have a hard time following God with our bodies in some areas of our lives, it's because we haven't understood the full enormity of the sacrifice he made for us to set us free. So the rest of the time now, a few minutes, I wonder if you might do a body check. How are you using your hands? Are they building up? Are they tearing down? I was over in East Timor a couple of years ago. They said there's an awful problem here with domestic violence. Even followers of Jesus are beating their wives. So here I am at a youth group activity, youth group activity, saying to the kids, young, get them young. I want you to know that you cannot say you are following Jesus whilst you do this to your wife. And they laughed. 
thought, that's good. They weren't laughing because they didn't agree with it. They saw the farcical disconnect. How are you using your mouth? Is it speaking words of encouragement and life over people? How are you using your mind? Is it to think creative, good, life-giving thoughts? Or is what you're absorbing through the eyes distorting it? How are you using all the parts of your body? Even the parts that you say, they're mine and no one else can tell me what to do with it at all. You're right, no one can. But the maker of the world. And the choice is yours. So I'm just going to allow this space now for the Spirit maybe of God to speak to you. Just quietly. Some of you where you sit might say, I need to confess my sin because he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all, from all, from all unrighteousness and you can make a fresh start here and now today in this place. Would you listen to God? What does he want you to do with your hands, your body, your mind, your mouth? calling some of you to do great things. He's calling some of you to tweak. He's calling some of you to open up parts of your life and he's saying, will you trust me even though it seems crazy? Would you believe me? And I tell you, my way and my path is good and right. Because if the light loses its light and the salt loses its saltiness, It's not good for anything but to be thrown out. Jesus, would you speak?